is. And so it impacts the next generation. They see something like that. Now, I told, I told the guys yesterday, I, mean, I, I realize we all have such busy schedules, and for me it's a whole lot more comfortable to be on the giving end than on the receiving end. So it was a humbling experience to be able to, to sit and receive. Um, so to all those of you who were able to come, and I know, I know it, not everyone could, and that's perfectly fine, but that's a beautiful example of how Christ's body works. All right. <clears throat> Very good. So I don't know how many of you remember this um, this event. Back in 2011, football fans will remember this. 2011, there was a playoff game between the Seattle Seahawks and the New Orleans Saints. This was being played in Seattle, which is known to be a loud stadium to start with. Um, and in that game, the, I think the Seahawks' record was like 7-9. and nine. They were the massive underdog in that game. But in that game, their running back, Marshawn Lynch, broke loose for a 67-yard touchdown run. And if, I'm, if I remember right, he broke seven or eight tackles on that run. And during that run, which actually led, he scored a touchdown, which led to them to a major upset victory over the Saints. But during that run... The noise in that stadium was so loud, it actually registered on the seismic scale that measures earthquakes. The whole stadium actually shook. It was so crazy loud. So it registered on the seismic scale. The amount of decibels that were given out registered at 137.6 decibels, which is the equivalent if you'd be standing right behind a fighter jet taking off of an aircraft carrier. Absolutely deafening how loud it was. There was a family who was recording something with their phones two miles from the stadium, and you can actually hear the crowd on the video that they were recording. That's how loud it was. So my mind went to that story when I read our text for today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 19. So this is the second to last. There's one more sermon. Um, Marcus will finish up Revelation in two weeks. By the way, next Sunday, Phil Mast um, will be here. You saw that it was announced. He's pastor at Dayspring Mennonite down in Virginia, the church where Mervyn Dawn came from, and Etta would have been part of that church at one point. Um, so he's in the area, and he is willing to come. He offered to come and share with us. So he'll be preaching that Sunday morning. Then the following Sunday, Marcus will finish Revelation. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Verse 1, After this I heard what seemed, like the loud, seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, for the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, all you who fear him, small and great. 
And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now I think the sound coming from heaven on this day is going to far outdo what anybody in Seahawks Stadium could ever do. It's going to be hold, not be heard two miles away, but it's going to be heard across the whole universe, the whole entire universe. What a day. This is the day, this marriage supper of the Lamb that he's talking about, this is the day when it brings to culmination God's whole plan of redeeming the world back to himself. This all comes together, and at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the multitudes are going to be crying out, and it's going to be like the roar of many waters and like mighty peals of thunder. We talked about the storm the other night, um, or from a couple weeks ago, that storm, how the lightning flashes. I mean, it was almost like daylight sometimes. It was just continuous. Sometimes you hear storms where thunder is like that. It's just this continuous roar of thunder, and it's heard everywhere. That's the sound that's going to emanate coming out of heaven on this day at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's simply what we're going to talk about today is that wedding feast of the Lamb. And I want to draw your attention to the words that this great multitude was saying, and specifically to the word hallelujah. Because this, this struck me as I, as I read through this, the word hallelujah is used four times. But what struck me, and this is, it seemed odd to me, this is the only place that this word is used in the, all the New Testament. The word hallelujah is not used anywhere else. In the Old Testament, it is used um, a lot in the Psalms, but a, a different version. It's halal, and it's translated praise most of the time. So it, it's there, but in the New Testament, this is the only place that it's used, and it's talking and it's used in this context of the, the wedding feast of the Lamb when the redemption of man is completed and the celebration is happening in heaven. And I was like, so why, why here? Now, I don't know if this is, I'm sure this isn't the whole of it, but something I want to think about. It's said that the word hallelujah is almost universal across the world in every language. I don't think it's completely there, but in almost every language, when songs are sung in whatever language you, you're, you, it's being sung in, when you come to the word hallelujah, it's the same word that's being sung throughout all these different languages. And one of the things that I've noticed throughout Revelations is when we come to the throne room of God, the multitudes of people that are standing around the throne and are worshiping are from every tribe, every tongue, every nation in the whole world. And the sound that is emanating from them is this word, 
hallelujah. It's praise to Jehovah. Jehovah is the one who saves, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. I don't know if that's the whole of it, but it's a beautiful picture. This word that is used across the world today is going to sound from the throne room, from every tribe, every nation, every tongue of all people. So I'm going to leave that, and I want to point us to this actual wedding feast. And it it mentions the marriage of the Lamb in verse 7, and then again in verse 9. And that's going to be where we're going to stay the rest of our time here. Now, usually when when there's a wedding, a wedding coming up, the focal point of the wedding is usually the bride, right? A big deal is made about, and that's perfect, that's wonderful. Um, But in this wedding feast, I want us to turn our attention to the bridegroom, because that is what this whole wedding is about. That's why this wedding even takes place, this wedding feast even takes place. It is because of the bridegroom. Now, if we've made our way through Revelation, we're all the way up in chapter 19, and if we have not come to this point, this far through Revelation, and recognized that Jesus is the exalted one through Revelation, then I think we're probably missing the whole point of the book of Revelation. It is about Jesus, the Lamb of God, being the exalted one. The bridegroom, that Lamb, is the center of attention. We've noticed or noted that word Lamb, the Lamb of God, numerous times. I don't know if you thought about it as we've gone through here. Um, We talked about the power of the Lamb, the sacrifice of the Lamb. Um, There's so many different ways that the word Lamb is used. The Lamb guides us to springs of living water. A total of 28 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb or the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb. Why is that? Well, you could go back. John the Baptist, when he first lays eyes on Jesus, he cries out, Behold, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, Then John, in the Gospel of John, in the John writing Revelation, that seems to be the term, the focal term that he uses. But then when we get to Revelation, and it's this story of Jesus being exalted, why, why does he use the word Lamb, the Lamb of God? When we think of someone powerful, something majestic and glorious, we don't necessarily think of a lamb. We think of the King of kings, the Lord of lords. In one place in Revelation, I think it's in chapter 5, he is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lion of Judah. There's a song we sing about that. There's songs that are sung about that. But that's the only place in all of Scripture that it refers to him as the Lion of Judah. And then it immediately follows up that, that claim or that proclamation of Jesus as the Lion of Judah. And he says, right after he says this, the Lion of Judah, and then Jesus comes into view and it's the picture of a lamb as, the one, as one who has been slaughtered. That is the picture that it's given, that is given. <clears throat> so why in this moment, this wedding feast, in this moment, the greatest celebration in the history of the universe, the greatest celebration that we will ever be a part of when God's plan of redemption meets, reaches its culmination, why does he call it the marriage feast of the Lamb? 
So I want to just want you to turn your focus on the Lamb. Jesus is the only everlasting sacrifice for sin. In the Old Testament, when in, in the book of Exodus, He was the one, the, the Lamb that was sacrificed where the Israelites put the, the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes, pointing us to Jesus. He was a sacrificial lamb throughout all of the Old Testament, the, the perfect lamb that had to be sacrificed for the sins of people. Spurgeon says this, In the whole of his life and in his death, he was no lion, he was no beast of prey, but he was the gentle, suffering, sacrificial lamb dying that we may not die, presenting Himself a sacrifice acceptable to God. Think about this. This this struck me. Jesus did not go to the cross begrudgingly. Yes, He wrestled in the garden, but He did not go to the cross begrudgingly. He knew what lay before him, and yet Scripture tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he actually endured the cross. Jesus, I would suggest to us this morning, Jesus delighted to be the sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. It was a delight for him to endure that cross. The thought of spending eternity with you made all the suffering and the ridicule, the mocking on the cross worthwhile because He loved you and I so much. So the Lamb of God is not a lowly title, but rather I would suggest that it is the most glorious title that we can ever give to our Savior. And was there ever a moment when His glorious love was more evident than when He went to the cross for you and I, the just for the unjust that we might live, as Peter writes. You see, it's one thing for someone to lay down a life for his friend, but Jesus laid down His life for you and I while we were His enemies. And He lays down His life for every person while we are His enemies And I believe this is why when we get to heaven, we will still see the scars in His hands, His feet, and His side. It's the evidence of the greatest act of love ever known to man. And so because of that, I believe that to be introduced at this wedding feast of the Lamb, it is to be introduced to His bride, to the church, as the sacrificial Lamb brings nothing but joy and gladness to His heart. So the Lamb of God is the bridegroom. Who is the bride? Who is the one who is coming? It is none other than the church. And I'm going to skim through this pretty quickly for the sake of time. But notice what it says about the bride. So the focal point is the lamb, the bridegroom. But it says the bride has made herself ready. This is the end of verse 7. And then the second thing it says about the bride is it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, 
bright and pure. Now, I don't have to tell any of you, for sure you ladies, that when a wedding's coming up, for sure on the bride's part, there is a ton of planning and preparation going on. This isn't something that gets thrown together in the last 24 hours and you just quick go do it. Most of us men would probably be perfectly fine with that. But there's a load of preparation, so many little details that are taken care of, so many things that are looked through in the preparation for the wedding day. And we as a church, the Bride of Christ, are called to live our lives in preparation for this day, this wedding, wedding day with the Lamb. So, how do we do that? What does that look like? How do we as a church, and I, and I say we as a church intentionally because, yes, it's us as individuals, but the bride is known as the church. It's not just me. It's not just you. It is all of us. It is all of the church throughout history, and all of the church in the future are a part of this great bride. We live our lives that is focused on others. When one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. When one part of the body rejoices, we all rejoice. We're intentional in walking with Jesus every moment of every day. And we're intentional inviting in opening in by inviting by opening our tables to those who do not yet know Jesus. Inviting others to this wedding feast of the Lamb, this greatest celebration that we're supposed to be looking forward to. We invite others to join us. And notice what it says, that she was clothed, it was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen. It says that the fine linens represent the righteous deeds of the saints, but fine linen also represents royalty. Someone who is clothed in fine linen, that would represented royalty, someone who was pure and, and given that place of royalty. And I, I was struck with the, the way it's phrased. I think the New Living Translation says she was permitted to wear this linen, this, this sign of purity, this sign of royalty. Now, who of us is worthy to wear something that represents that we ourselves are pure, that we are royal? We are only that because of the sacrifice of our bridegroom. That's the only reason that we can be clothed in that fine linen and we are given a place of royalty. The end of, the rest of, or the end of chapter 19 talks about when Jesus comes back on his white horse and his armies with him. That's part, of, that's part of who we are. We will be ruling in the world. We are given royalty because of what the bridegroom has done for us. Now this wedding, in verse 7 it calls it the marriage of the Lamb, and in verse 9 it calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. Other translations call both of them just the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. But this is going to be the grandest display of love and joy that we have ever experienced. We think a wedding now is a, is a grand display of a bride and a groom expressing their love for each other, and we all get to be a part of that, that, does, that, that doesn't even hold a match to what this is going to be when we see Jesus 
face to face and the joy on his face as he welcomes us as his bride into that marriage supper of the Lamb and the joy that he has in expressing in us being his bride. See, we often, I often, let me just say me, I often look at this day or think about this day and the joy that it brings to me, to us as his bride, in come in when we actually see our Savior face to face, and it does and it should. But do you ever stop and think about the joy that it brings Jesus to bring his bride home? Think about that. The joy that Jesus feels and longs for in sharing this moment with you. It's going to be a celebration like none other. So in conclusion, if you were to ask any engaged person when their wedding is going to be. So this is June. Let's say it's in September. I would probably put money on it that you're not going to get something like, oh, three or four months down the road. You're going to get an exact day. It's going to be 91 and a half days or 92 days until our wedding. It's not this vague thing out there. If it's closer you're probably going to be hearing hours, 52 hours, whatever, until we walk up and we, we become married. There's tremendous anticipation for the day. Now, obviously, we don't know when the day is that Jesus is coming to call His bride home. But with that same anticipation and even greater anticipation, we should be longing and looking forward to this day when we celebrate with our Savior. And God has done, given us a beautiful gift in reminding us of who we are and a reminder of this day that's in front of us. So in, in the end of Matthew, actually, I'll, I'll come back to that. I want to close, close the service a little bit differently here. But the wedding ceremony that John talks about here and the, the wedding ceremony of the people in John's time, the culture in which John is writing, I want to walk us through what that looked like or what that, in, in many ways, what that looked like. And this comes um, from a lot of this from the teaching from Ray Vanderlaan. If you guys know who he is, um, the, does, talks about the Jewish culture. Um, then there was another rabbi that I, um, that I listened to talking about this. Um, he was at Max Locato's church years ago. I don't remember his name. But anyway, so in this time, in this culture, a cup of wine represented two things. It represented blood, blood that was shed, and it represented joy. So keep those two in mind. It represents, the wine represents blood or a sacrifice, and it also represents joy. So in the Jewish custom of marriage, 
when a young man would see a young lady that he'd be interested in, usually this was set up and arranged by the, by the father of the groom, um, but when he would see a young lady that he was interested in, and he would want to pursue marriage with that, that young lady, he would go to her, and he would offer her a cup of wine, and in doing so, he, was, he is saying to her that this represents my life's blood. This represents my life, and I am giving it to you. If you take this cup, you will be mine. You will be married to me. And so if that young lady takes that cup and they drink from that cup together, it represents their very lifeblood, their very lives being given to each other. And in a sense, that ceremony would seal and cement their marriage. But the one thing that's different, a bride and a groom who were married in this tradition did not immediately move in together. The bride would not move in with her husband. There would be a period of separation. This is what you know the term betrothal. Think of Mary and Joseph. They were in the betrothal period. This time of betrothal, so different, so different from what the engagements that we have today. Totally different. So when that wine was shared, that cup representing their lifeblood, that cemented their marriage together. And then there was this time of separation, and the groom would go back home. He'd go back home to his father's home, and he would begin to prepare a place for his bride. And this could go on anywhere from one year, two years, and even three years down the road. And once he had his preparation done, the father would tell him, you may now go and get your bride. And at that point, the son would set off with a procession of people. Often this happened at night with a torch-lit procession going to claim his bride. And during this whole, all during these years, one, two, three years, with this time when the groom is preparing the place for his bride, the bride is preparing herself for this moment, and she is watching and waiting. Do you guys remember here just a little while ago we went through the, the story of the, the ten virgins, the ones who had their lamps lit, they were ready, they were waiting for the coming of the bride or the, of the bridegroom. And the bride would be waiting for him to appear. Now the one interesting thing about this ceremony when their marriage would be sealed, when they would each take that cup of wine and they would take it together, representing their marriage, their life given to each other, they would not take part of that again until their marriage was complete and they were back together. When the bridegroom came back for the bride, only then would they take that cup, of, that cup together and then... Let me, let me read you what Jesus tells his disciples. So in Matthew 26, when Jesus instituted the Last Supper, he tells them, this cup represents my blood, the sac- my sacrifice for your sin. So the cup that represents the blood, and he gives it to his disciples. And I think his disciples recognize what's happening here. 
This isn't more than just commemorating the Passover. This is, in essence, Jesus proposing and saying, my life is given for you, and he does that for you and I. My life is given for you, and every time we take communion, we are telling Jesus, this is my life given for you. But then Jesus ends it this way. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. So the bride and the groom would not drink their cup together again, representing, see, it's that the first cup time they take it, it represents their life's blood. The second time, it represents joy. This cup of joy, and then the, the wedding celebrations, for sure in their culture, this is probably something we could learn really well from, is a celebration like none other. Our, sometimes our, the ceremonies, yes, they're somber. Our wedding, I'm talking about our wedding ceremonies, but there needs to be celebration. Sometimes, man, I remember when I, we got married. Sorry, hon. Uh, this was such a serious, somber occasion. I was like, now I look back, it's like, dude, just cut loose. This is such a joyous occasion. And sometimes we make it this stiff, formal, this formal thing, and the ceremony is, but then it's followed with this incredible joy that's just poured out. And that is what we're going to be experiencing with Jesus, that cup of joy, when we take it the second time. And Jesus said, the next time Jesus drinks from that cup, it's going to be with you and I, and it's going to set off a celebration that's going to be heard across the world. It's going to be a celebration like none other has ever been known. So I wonder, I wonder if some of you are like me. Do you guys ever wonder why, why we only do communion twice a year? I, I, it's a tradition. I don't know, I'm not sure where it came from, how it all started. Maybe it's something we need to think about. But I, I talked to the leadership team. I asked them if it's okay. Because they want to end our service with communion. It'll be a little bit different. But I want us to, to take that, the bread and then the cup. And I want us to be thinking about taking this cup is our response to Jesus' proposal to us. And it's a reminder to us whose bride we are. We are His, and in, in taking that cup, we're saying, I'm yours, fully, fully committed to you. In the Old Testament, the, the penalty for adultery was death. And I wonder if that's what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians when he talks about communion. We come and we take communion while living a life of sin. He said, is that why so many are weak and sick among you? So all I'm saying is this. When we take the cup, and we're telling Jesus, I accept your proposal. My life is yours. It means that I don't flirt with the temptation, the allure of the world anymore. It's, I'm telling Jesus, I am wholly, completely, and fully yours. And one day, one day, I'm going to take this. We will take this cup. And it won't be a cup representing our 
life's blood, but it will be a cup of joy that will set off a celebration like none other, like nothing that we have ever experienced in our lives. You see, today I believe if we take that picture of that Jewish wedding, that Jewish custom of a wedding, where the groom goes off and he prepares a place. Jesus said, after all, I go to prepare a place for you. And when he comes again, he's going to take us home with him to that place. We're in that period, that betrothal period, if you will, where our bridegroom has gone and he's preparing a place. And one day we will sit at, I don't know if it's going to look like that, maybe that looks maybe a little formal, but there's going to be a party. It's going to be a celebration. And every time when we take this cup, we're commemorating that. Not only saying my life is yours, but recognizing that one day that cup of joy will be shared with Jesus face to face. And so today, we're going to close. Abby, do you want to come up? She's going to play some music. And I'm... This is one of those things, this can be awkward if we let it be awkward, okay? But it doesn't need to be. What I want us to to do is just just come on up, stand up, get the bread, get a cup, and just stand here and take communion. And stand here, this is you and Jesus. This is you standing before him saying, my life is yours. I give myself to you. I'm wholly, completely yours. And just find your way back to your seat and we'll close your service. Let it be a moment that renews and ignites the passion and the love. First part of Revelation talks about our first love. Let's renew that first love with our Savior. 